electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, damage control after Hurricane Isaias. Got lucky to get here. Uh, frankly, I think everybody's kind of <laughs> lucky heard. to be getting around today. <laughs> getting past the stimulus stalemate with Florida Senator Marco Rubio, chairman of the Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship. We have to do something. Like the biggest problem here, the worst thing that could happen is that we do nothing and then let this thing ride on its own. And from college towns to ghost towns, Remote university learning could mean serious economic repercussions for the communities that rely on students for survival. CNBC's Alan Moy. What happens at the university affects almost every aspect of life in this city. Those stories plus stocks on a roll, Apple's marching to $2 trillion and Disney's leaning on streaming to get through the year. It's the streaming gain versus the rest of the business pain. It's Wednesday, August 5th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back and buy in three, two, one. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Scott Wapner and Mike Santoli. Joe and Andrew are both out today, but guys, it's great to have both of you here. First up on today's podcast, surveying the damage of Hurricane Isaias. Millions, including me and many of my Squawk Box colleagues, are without power today after the storm tore up the east coast of the U.S., But power loss is among the least of concerns for Americans who are unable to leave their homes at all and whose businesses are facing hurricane damages on top of pandemic troubles. Here's Becky Quick. And I know how difficult it is for everybody with the storm moving through, with power lines down, with trees down. Uh, So I I am grateful that we're actually all here today. I'm really glad to have both of you here. Thank you. Got lucky to get here. Uh, Frankly, I think everybody's kind of lucky (laughs) to be getting around today. Tree limbs are down everywhere, uh, sporadic power outages. You see it as you're driving, uh, certainly in this corridor, uh, Becky. It was one nasty storm. Yeah, yeah it, uh, it, it, it did a number. Um, thankfully, there wasn't more damage, but th- this is something that people are going to be cleaning up for from some, for quite some time. And when you think about businesses dealing with the, the lack of power in a lot of places at this point, it's like the plagues coming down after dealing with COVID and everything else that's been handed this way. Contessa Brewer joining us now with the impact on the insurance industry. Contessa, good morning to you. Hi there, Scott. Many insurers uh, are depending more heavily today on video calls with policyholders rather than an army of adjusters responding to a disaster scene. Probably a good thing because it would be an expensive proposition. This storm effects were felt from Florida to New England. Isaias made landfall in North Carolina, as you mentioned, as a hurricane with storm surges. It spawned tornadoes, intense rain, sustained strong wind. The upside here is it didn't last long, but it sure covered a lot of territory. About 100 million people were under watches or warnings. At least 3 million homes and businesses lost power. Six people were killed. At least six states saw tornadoes. I mean, this was really as much a wind event as flooding which could mean a bigger bill for insurers. In Hurricane Hannah that we just saw in Texas, there was a lot of flooding. 25% of the estimated 400 million in damage from that storm will be covered by the National Flood Insurance Program, according to RMS estimates. 
Well, this season for earnings, we've heard insurers report their catastrophe losses, and they're detailing costs related to coronavirus, costs related to civil unrest damage. They will have to now fold in for this quarter wildfires in California, Hurricane Hannah in Texas, and now adding Isaias to that ledger as well, Scott. Contessa, businesses are the last thing they need to, to deal with, and many may have even changed their policies because of the coronavirus to lower their premiums, and now they're facing this? That's right. I mean, what's going to happen is, because so many people have been looking for areas to cut, and I just talked to a bus company this week who said he had rolled back coverage for his company um, in the wake of the pandemic. If you have cut your policy, if you've raised your deductible or, uh, or cut your cap for your policy, and then the storm rolls through and you have a down tree or, or a major uh, damage to your business, uh, we might have owners who are going in and really regretting that they decided to cut those costs. The other thing that I wanted to mention is business disruption insurance. It's something I've been talking a lot about in the wake of coronavirus closures because a lot of business owners were hoping that their insurers would pay out for the closures, and those claims have largely been denied. In this case, if you go in and you have a downed tree, if you have broken glass, if you have some kind of wind damage to your property that prevents your customers from getting in, the good news here is you likely will be covered for business disruption for that physical damage to the property, Scott. You may have a higher deductible, though, because as typical in hurricanes, that's just way the, the policy may be written, correct? That's correct. And in, in many states, that deductible may be much higher um, because it's different for hurricanes. And since this came in as a named storm, that would kick in that hurricane uh, policy coverage. All right, Contessa, we appreciate it. Disney shares, they are rising right now after the company reported a profit of eight cents per share. That was versus expectations of a loss of 64 cents a share. The company said it has 60.5 million paid subscribers to its Disney Plus streaming service as of Monday. That's after just nine months of operation. That was a bit of an upside surprise that there was strength in July after the end of the quarter. Uh, and another big announcement after the earnings release, CEO Bob Chapek said that Disney Plus subscribers will be able to watch the much-anticipated live-action Mulan film on that platform for $29.99 in the U.S. beginning on September 4th. The movie's original release had been pushed back as theaters were forced to close. So this will be Disney's first effort to sell content on Disney Plus on top of the monthly $6.99 subscription fee. Uh, Disney also launching a new general entertainment streaming service next year under the Star brand it acquired from Fox. It will feature content Disney already owns and be fully integrated into Disney Plus in many markets. And uh, you see the stock indicated up 6%. I know there was an upgrade uh, from Credit Suisse today. Again, interestingly, the first reflex on the stock was to, was to actually decline on the news. But it seems like the encouraging news on Disney Plus and the, and the Mulan release, which is uh, most likely going to take $30 out of my pocket at some point, yeah. um, is, uh, is, oh, is bolstering sure. I'm, I'm just thrilled for <laughs> I'm thrilled for any new content. Yeah. Anything that you want to give me that I can pay for anyway, we'll, we'll take in this house at that's this right. point. And, you know, that's that's part of kind of seeing how this is going to shake out. You, you know, the theme parks will reopen at some point. You know, theaters will reopen at some point. It's a question of how long. But it was kind of phenomenal looking at the number lines, the revenue lines within that, just how much revenue they had lost at the theme parks uh, compared to a year ago, how much of that, that revenue had come down, how much uh, revenue never, never developed from theaters being closed and stuff. And that, that's phenomenal. When you start looking through those, some of those things, it's hard 
to really get your head around how big of an impact this has had. But Disney is one place that kind of shows you on almost every level. Becky, street, uh, park revenues, to your point, down 85 percent. And the story really right. is uh, the differences of the businesses. It's the streaming gain versus the rest of the business pain. Uh, 100 million subs now for streaming. Uh, between Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. Uh, so that, that beat goes on. It's just how do you manage the, the future of the traditional side of the business, which is, you know, the, no sports for a long time, add dollar dry up right. as a result of what's happening with the pandemic. But at least they have the, the streaming line to carry you through some tough times. And that stock, as Mike said, did have a nice turnaround after the number was released and you started to get more details about Mulan and, and, and everything else. The one thing I would say with that, the, the revenue was up slightly for the direct to consumer, which includes all these streaming products. But the, the losses were increased as well. I think they were up about 26%, the loss on those lines, because this is a business that they're investing in right now. And right now the market is still willing to look through that. They want to make sure that consumers are showing up for those things. But they're, they're not going to make a profit on, on, on some of these areas for quite some time. Right. I was just going to say there was also some attention on uh, some outperformance on the expense side as well. Now, some of that is not yeah. going to carry on into the future. They shut down movie and film pro uh, and TV production and, and all of that. But uh, there was some discipline over there. And I think it encouraged people to say that they can protect their, their margins right now as the company does sit on really much more debt than it has ever had before after the Fox acquisition and then just raising debt to make it through the crisis. We are also watching shares of Apple this morning. We're watching that to see if it crosses $2 trillion. Remember, $467.77. That's the price to watch because that would be when Apple would actually become the first company with a $2 trillion market cap. And Apple has done something that no other S&P 500 stock has done in the last 35 years. According to data that's compiled by the S&P Dow Jones Indices, at its current $1.87 trillion market cap, it now accounts for some 6.5% of the entire S&P 500, surpassing the record of 6.4% that was set by IBM back in 1995. The stock has just taken off and, and gone straight up, especially recently. You know, it was only two years ago and a couple of days that it first crossed the $1 trillion mark, August yeah. 2nd of 2018. Thank you, Peter Schack, now for that. But that was when we finally saw this stock become the first U.S. company to cross the trillion-dollar mark. Here we are two years later looking at any time when it, it, it could be all the way back up to uh, $2 trillion. Yeah, and the, the remarkable thing about that is it's not as if earnings have doubled then. The stock was undervalued relative to the market two years ago, and the way you can double from being undervalued when earnings don't grow that much is now it's... I wouldn't say overvalued, but it's at a premium to the market uh, right now. That's 6.5%, so one sixteenth of every dollar that goes into the S&P is essentially uh, buying Apple. Um, and, 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 there, and, you know, that, that tells you uh, its weight, its economic power. I would say before 1985, there were times when stocks like IBM or GM did uh, represent more than 6.5% of the S&P. So it's not unprecedented, but it absolutely says that this is a winner-take-most market right now, Becky. You know, you guys raise an interesting question in, in talking about how long it took to get from $1 trillion in market cap to on the door of $2 trillion. And Mike and, and Becky, you know, we had somebody come on the other morning here on Squawk, who suggested that a Apple hasn't really done, what's the difference in, in Apple's business between $1 trillion and $2 trillion? Large parts of their yeah. business have, the most important part of their business has slowed in that time period. Obviously, iPhone sales yeah, growth. Services. And, and while the services business has slowed a little bit, certainly that's the, the point of growth for the future. Services um, is the high margin. 
yeah, it, it, look, it's, it's hard to throw stones uh, at Apple. Uh, everybody loves it. The, the stock is where it is for a, for a reason. But you do have people questioning, Becky, as to whether it, quote, unquote, deserves to be at $2 trillion in such a short period of time from yeah. $1 trillion. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. I, I, I was thinking about it this morning, and that's why I asked Peter Schack now about when the date was that it first crossed the trillion, crossed the t- trillion dollar mark. I mean, I, I remember, it, I, I thought it was only about a year and a half ago. I, I remember when we were walking around going to see which company in the U.S. was going to cross a trillion dollars first. That's <laughs> yeah. right. And I can't believe how quickly we, we've jumped to this next milestone. Now, that being said, it was only about six weeks after Apple first hit a trillion dollars uh, that the market did have a pretty important peak. Uh, not to say it's going to repeat, but, it, you know, we don't want to make it seem <laughs> as if it's been a smooth ride for the markets or for Apple uh, for the last two years. But it absolutely has accelerated back to, you know, this unprecedented valuation. Don't forget about the others either, right? It was who was going to get to a trillion first, and then it's like, hey, everybody joins the yeah. party now, right? <laughs> you get these other big cap tech stocks that have gone to a trillion and, and beyond. It, and it tells the story about where the money's gone in the market over the last year or so. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Senator Marco Rubio on why TikTok went from the hottest download for teenagers to the hottest topic for politicians. It's all about the data. The difference between TikTok and the other social media apps is by Chinese law, ByteDance has to turn over all of their data to the Chinese government. In fact, their disclosure says so. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Scott Wapner along with Becky Quick. Andrew and Joe are out today. All right, let's get to our next story. Tentative signs of progress uh, in a new stimulus bill from Washington to try and help alleviate the worst economic effects of the coronavirus. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer telling reporters that he and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are making progress in talks with the Republicans and uh, will continue to watch and see what they are doing in terms of all of this. Joining us right now on the phone, of course, the biggest issues are things like federal unemployment pay- payments, and that is unresolved at this point. Joining us right now to talk about what it will take to get a deal done is Marco Rubio. He's the senator from Florida. He's also the chairman of the Committee of Small Business and Entrepreneurship. And, and Senator, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you. The biggest issue is Wi-Fi doesn't work in the Russell Senate office building, so we've got to get that <laughs> fixed, too. But Sorry. <laughs> I know we're dealing with some technical issues. We appreciate you being there trying to dial in for this. What would it take, you think, to get a deal done at this point? How close is a, is a potential deal? Well, I don't know if I'd say the net word is close. I think movement, which is, you know, look, if we, if we want to be, you know, just we need to be realistic here. The only way you get a bill passed, right, is simple, you know, how you make a bill become law is you got to get it passed out of the Senate, which under our rules require Democrats and Republicans to vote for it. You need 60 votes. You've got to get it passed in the House, which is controlled by Democrats, and you have to have a Republican president sign it. So that means anything we come up with is going to have to have things that both sides make concessions on and both sides get priorities in. And the only way to do that is for each side to kind of move towards each other 
to get a deal done. And up till last night, there was no movement towards each other. At least now, there's been an agreement to say, all right, well, we want to get a deal done by the end of this week so we can have a vote on it uh, early next week and get it done. So that's a positive sign. Obviously, there's a lot of work to be done now to bridge some of these divides, which which are still pretty you know wide in, in issues like uh, the unemployment, foreclosure, liability, and uh, protections, and things of that nature. We know that Leader McConnell has said uh, at this point he may break with some in his caucus. I'm guessing from talking to you in the past and, and from listening to what you're saying right now that you might be inclined to go along with a package that, that some of your Republican colleagues might not. Is that true? Well, I, I think we have to do something. Like the biggest problem here, the worst thing that could happen is that we do nothing and then let this thing ride on its own. And we're going to be right back here because, for example, the, the PPP funds for most small businesses have been exhausted. They spent through their eight weeks of payroll. So you're going to begin to see at some point small business layoffs again as companies ran out of the PPP money. There's still great uncertainty in whatever sector they're in, and they start laying people off. So that's, that's a real thing, and we're going to see it, and unfortunately, and then that begins to trickle across the rest of the economy, including the real estate sector, because they can't pay rent, uh, and so forth. So we, we have to act. We have to do something, and that will require us to vote for a bill that has things in it that I may not necessarily like. Now, there's a limit to what you're going to take. I'm not going to pass the $3 billion you know, HEROES Act or whatever they called it, which has all kinds of stuff in there that has nothing to do Brilliant. with the pandemic. So. Three billion. I'm sorry. The three tri- trillion. I apologize. Yeah, three trillion. Right. <laughs> right. It's hard yeah, to get well, your head well, around big numbers like this. I know. So so anyway. So that that's why everyone's going to have to do something to move uh, to, to get what we want, which is the nature of divided government. Uh, Senator, what uh, what would you like to see happen with with small businesses in particular? We did have a couple of senators on yesterday. Senator Bennett from Colorado and Senator Young from uh, Indiana who bipartisan have put together, I think, 48 people who have signed on who said they would like to see uh, very low interest loans that would potentially be forgiven, uh, paid out and, and backed up by the government. I think they had a price tag of about $300 billion in, in federal money that it would take to kind of get that started and, 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 and seeded. What, what do you think about that plan? What, what well, would you go along with? Yeah, no, I think their idea is a very good idea. Uh, the problem is, you know, we, we don't even have $300 billion in the entire small business sector of the bill. I mean, what we've been allocated, what we've been told that we have is a little under $300 billion, a bit under $300 billion, and that includes about $125 billion that rolls over of unspent PPP money. So we don't even have $300 billion for the whole program, not to mention for that specific one. We have tried to incorporate a version of that idea, scaled down uh, to, uh, for example, opportunity zones and new market tax credit zones, uh, you know, census tracts, uh, well, we know there are low-income, that business, small business and low-income neighborhoods have very little you know, uh, money on hand uh, beyond a couple weeks, uh, if at all. And so we tried to take the general concept and sort of scale it down. So I'm not against their idea. We, right now, we just don't have the $300 billion allocated to us to do it. I also think that you know, um, it could be a challenge for the Small Business Administration to administer something that, uh, that big and that new all the challenges of getting PPP up and running. So, uh, you know, I'd like to see some runway on when it starts up because they're going to need some time to get something like that operational. But the concept is a positive concept. We, we just haven't been allocated the money right now to do it. Yeah. Senator, it's Scott. It's good to see you this morning. A couple things, a um, couple of other hot stories, if you will. Wondering what role you played specifically in getting the president not to ban TikTok outright 
and allow these talks to take place with Microsoft. Your name has been mentioned in some reports as intervening. Well, I wouldn't say intervening. I gave my opinion. I talked to the Secretary of the Treasury. I talked to the Chief of Staff. I talked to the President. And I shared my view a couple points. The, 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 it's not that TikTok and before it, Musical.ly, which is what ByteDance spot. It's not the videos uh, that is the problem. I mean, ultimately, you know, they're, they're actually, you know, 15-second videos. They're actually, you know, pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty funny videos on many occasions and certainly very interesting. It's not the videos. It is the data. Data is more valuable than gold. Personal data today is more valuable than gold. That, that data is what commerce is going to be built on, what medicine and pharmaceutical, everything is going to be based on. And, and, and the difference between TikTok and the other social media apps is by Chinese law, ByteDance has to turn over all of their data to the Chinese government. In fact, their disclosure says so. And, 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 they, and I don't care where they store it. That's the big problem. And so if the company can be sold or transferred to a company that sets up processes to protect that data from any, any government coming in and just grabbing all of it because they, they want it, uh, then I think it's fine. You know, if they can't, then they can't continue to exist. So that's my view on it. It's, uh, and, uh, and ultimately, look, when you ban something outright, you turn it into the forbidden fruit, you, make people, you actually make people want to go on it more. And there are ways, you know, where people can work around the... Uh, uh, any sort of block to get on it. But I, I prefer right. to just have a, a, a site that doesn't turn over the data uh, to the Chinese government. And if we can find a way to do that and, uh, to a new owner, then that'd be, I don't care who that owner is, as long as it's someone that we trust in that regard and has a proven record of doing that, then I think we'll be fine. If you, not, then we have a problem. You comfortable with the, with the president saying that the, the, the government needs to get some payment for uh, giving this deal the go-ahead, which the president has doubled down on in the last 24 hours. Do you agree with the president? Well, you know, the president's a good negotiator and he drives a hard bargain. And if he can figure out a way to get money uh, for the United States out of such a transaction, that, that's great. But ultimately, I think the big issue here is we, I never viewed this as a, as a revenue source. I viewed it as uh, a, a national security problem, uh, both long-term and, and in the midterm, in terms of their ability to collect data. And so for me, as long as we can, through our laws, uh, create a situation where that data is no longer being turned over to the Chinese Communist Party, I think that's a huge win that I frankly don't think you can measure in dollars and cents. Senator, the headlines have been trumpeting the fact that coronavirus cases have, have certainly come down in Florida, but I've also read a lot about how many of those uh, testing centers, uh, especially the ones outside, had been shut down ahead of uh, this tropical storm coming up. Deaths yesterday were reported to be 245, and, and that's a, a high number. Where, where do you think things stand right now in terms of Florida and, and COVID? Well, what, what happens is that COVID becomes a big deal in the news again, and then people start to change their lives. I, I can just tell you both anecdotally, but just I'm very comfortable in saying this because I was there, okay? What happened is coronavirus kind of fell out of the news for a couple of days when the protests started and all that sort of thing. And so that combined with the reopening, people got comfortable. They started going out. You started doing things that, you know, like if things were back to normal and the virus had sort of is no longer a great threat. The virus was still a threat. It just wasn't as prevalent. And then you saw the numbers surge. Deaths are a lagging indicator, so it's kind of the last thing for the continuum. The first thing you'll see is the emergency room visits. Then you'll, you'll see the cases. Then you'll see the hospitalizations. And then you'll see the death. So we've seen all of those. The emergency room visits, the cases, the hospitalizations begin to track down. And now the last one that will begin to come down is the deaths. But if we reach better numbers, the virus is still out there. And it's not like the virus is you know, 20% less uh, 
uh, dangerous. It's still dangerous. So it is important that we learn the lesson from the first time. And as we go back, we don't go back to normal. We go back to the new normal, which for some time, you know, until we make more advances on, against this disease, will require us to do many things differently. Uh, than we used to do before. Senator, at the same time, you, you have, uh, I just saw the numbers in the last 24 hours, maybe they've changed just slightly, but you have 46 hospitals with zero ICU beds, 26 only have one, and there are four counties at the minimum now that have zero. How concerning is that? Well, it is, and I think that's one of the unique aspects of this is that, you know, on a regional basis, the numbers will vary. Even if the case numbers are not high or the percentages are not high, uh, the ICU numbers might be high, and then it requires them to enter into ventures with neighboring hospitals. I believe uh, both Pinellas and Hillsborough, particularly, I believe uh, Hillsborough had some concerning numbers yesterday with regards to ICU. Now, those numbers generally don't count beds that can be converted into ICU units, um, so that's why I, I don't think uh, you're, you're hearing sort of a state-level alarm, and there are arrangements made for uh, neighboring counties to assist uh, in availability. Um, so, you know, but, but again, I mean, the concern is, as you've outlined, is that anytime you have to make those kinds of moves, it puts a strain on the rest of the system. So hopefully those numbers will begin to improve. And um, as I said, as admissions come down, ultimately your ICU numbers will, will eventually come down as well. Senator Rubio, thank you so much for your time today. We hope to speak with you again soon. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Next on Squawk Pod, how do we reopen schools? And is it safe to even try? President Obama's former health policy advisor, Dr. Zeke Emanuel. You cannot consider opening in most states in the country now because their transmission rate is way too high. Plus, when college students aren't at college, what happens to the businesses near campus? Those stories right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Becky Quick, Scott Wapner, and Mike Santoli. Here's Becky. Well, this should be the time of year when college towns start bustling again. But with so many universities delaying the start of classes or going hybrid or even virtual with their teaching, the cities that surround those colleges are struggling to survive. Elon Mui joins us right now. She's got more on this story. Elon, good morning. Good morning, Becky. Well, 65% of colleges plan to go at least partially online this next semester. So it's really hard to have the town if you don't have the gown. We look at what happens to a city when students stay home. August is normally when Athens, Ohio comes alive. Roughly 18,000 students would flood into the city to start the semester at Ohio University, tripling the local population and driving the local economy. But this year, the pandemic has put everything on pause. Typically, college students across Ohio spend $960 million a year off campus at places like Brennan's Coffee Shop and Athens Icon. But this college town turned into a ghost town once coronavirus hit. What happens at the university affects almost every aspect of life in this city, 
Revenues from the hotel guest tax were down $86,000 after graduation went virtual. The college isn't buying as much water from the city. That's a $100,000 hit. And revenue from parking meters and garages has been cut in half. Becky, the city has already taken a million dollars out of its capital budget just to pay employees. There's just not much left to cut. Back over to you. Hey, Elon, this has been a continuing conversation that we, we've had uh, for weeks, if not months at this point, and, and that's what the federal government may or may not do to help out in this situation. Senator Mike Braun from Indiana said that he and several of his more conservative Republican colleagues in the Senate don't want to give any additional money to municipalities or to states. They think that that's a, a situation where a lot of these states or, um, or cities have just been poorly run. Uh, what, what would Athens like to see to, from Washington, and what happens if they don't get that money? Well, college towns like Athens say they're in a really unique situation, and that's because this year is also the census. So much federal funding is calculated based off of a city's population, and they say that the smaller student body means that as much as $40 million over the next decade could potentially be at risk. So this isn't just something that they're saying is a short-term problem. This is something they say is going to be with them for a very long time. That's an excellent point. That's something I thought of. Elon, thank you. It's good to see you. In a recent op-ed in the New York Times, Dr. Zeke Emanuel suggested that we should think about what students engage in outside of the classroom just as much as in the classroom itself. Joining us right now is Dr. Zeke Emanuel. He is former White House health policy advisor under President Obama. He's also vice provost of global initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania and somebody who's been looking at what to do with schools very closely. Dr. Emanuel, thanks for being, for being here today. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start with the premise that you think schools should be opening and you'd like to see them do that, but you'd like to see them do it safely. Um, what, what's at the top of the list? What, what does that mean uh, for elementary, middle school and for high schools? Let's start with that. First of all, it's only really viable in communities that have the tr uh, transmission rate very low. You cannot consider opening in most states in the country now because their transmission rate is way too high, their test positivity rate is too high, and so there's just too much virus in the community. You open schools and some child or adult will come in with the coronavirus and spread it to everyone. If you have a test positivity rate low, then you have to do, uh, you have to think about dropping off students, the classroom, uh, lunchtime, extracurricular activities. Um, you know, on the negative side, I think a lot of contact sports are out. Uh, that's not a good idea. Can we just go back to that? When you say you need low transmission rates, you need low yeah. uh, positivity testing that's there. I, I know the national guidelines look at, I, I think, what is it, 5% positivity you have to have below? Correct. Uh, Correct. In, in terms of the number of tests coming back that are positive and uh, the are not the transmission factor of below 1%. Uh, well, we're, we look at the number of uh, cases, new cases per 100,000 uh, that you get over okay. a, averaged over a week. That's, the, uh, that's what we're looking at. So if you think of 75 new cases in a week per 100,000 people, that's roughly 10 a day uh, per 100,000 people of new cases. And that's a good way of looking at it. Um, I will tell you that there are many, many, many European countries and other countries that are well below that 10 new cases per 100,000 per day. Italy, which, you know, we were uh, making fun of in uh, March and April, uh, is in the uh, two to three new cases per day range. 
so you can get down there. It does require a concerted effort, which we don't seem to be able to mount in this country uh, at all. And that is the real worrisome factor, in my opinion. We've seen schools in places like Germany and Norway and others that have opened successfully. What are, what are they doing correctly? What, are, what should we be following in terms of those guidelines? Or are you saying uh, you couldn't do it because the community transmission is just too high? Well, first, you have to get the community transmission down. And places like Norway, Germany, uh, Netherlands have successfully done that. They have brought the community transmission down. And therefore, you reduce the risk that anyone's going to walk into school, whether an adult or a student, and be positive. And that's, that's just the basis. Um, and then they do uh, uh, reduce the class size, uh, reduce the chance for uh, random interaction. They pod students, so students go to class together, they play together, uh, you do things outside to the extent you can, you keep the windows open. Uh, we also need to think about uh, air filtration when we have to close the windows because of the cold. You need to have HEPA filters. Uh, all of this is very important. All of this is doable. It does take money, uh, but most of it's actually uh, a good investment when you consider all the things that schools make possible, including getting parents to full, full productivity uh, at jobs. Uh, so, you know, schools are vital for the students. They're also vital for the overall economy. Dr. Emanuel, how many cases would you consider too many in a, in a school building? Uh, well, you know, one case is too many because of the chance of, of uh, spreading it around. Um, but what I think we really need to be able to do is to reduce the number of cases in the community and then you will have a situation where if a case does pop up, you can successfully uh, suppress it and contact trace the few other students that might have it. Um, and that, again, has been done successfully. It's not that you are going to eliminate cases. You know, cases are going to arise. What you want to do then is reduce their spread, make the number of cases that arise rare, and then very quickly have the capacity to contact trace and isolate those people who've come in contact with the students, test them, and see if they're positive. If they're not positive, you can bring them back to class. But can you, can you do that without closing the entire school? Let's say we send kids back and you have a, a positive case or two within the schoolhouse. Can you keep the school itself open while dealing with the infected student and the tracing that is involved in figuring out who else might have been exposed? Uh, that is a great question. Yes, you can if you do what's called potting or putting students in cohorts. So say you have 15 students in a classroom now, and then they go outside and play together. Uh, they eat lunch together. You should be able to isolate it to those 15 and not to the whole 300 or 400 students in a school. And that's the key. Dr. Emanuel, thanks a lot for your time. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Always nice to be on Squawk Box. That does it for Squawk Pod today. Thank you for joining us. Pandemic, power outages, and all. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And let us know what you think. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC or leave us a rating and review. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, 
you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.